It's 6 p.m. and you're tuned to your community radio station, KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Wednesday, October 25th, and this is the KVMR Evening News. I'm Julia Jim. Teachers from the Fresno Unified School District, which happens to be California's third largest public school system, have voted to strike. The California report brings us the details, as well as a scope into what this may mean for the district going forward. Then, after a look at local news and weather, KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza speaks with Luis Reed, United Way of Nevada County's Executive Director, to learn about the organization's annual program, Project Warmth. That's all before KVMR's Al Stoller speaks with a prescribed fire and fuel specialist about fuel reduction in our local forests. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Teachers from the Fresno Unified School District, California's third largest public school system, have voted to strike. It's the first strike authorization by Fresno Unified teachers in more than 40 years. Here's KVPR's Carrie Klein with more. Fresno's 4,000 teachers want smaller class sizes, salary raises that keep up with inflation, better health benefits, and smaller special education caseloads. According to the Fresno Teachers Association, more than 93 percent of teachers voted for the strike. The vote capped off more than 18 months of contract negotiations. In a statement, the school district said it has met many of the teachers' demands, including competitive raises, creating 100 new classrooms, and expanding health care coverage. The walkout is set to begin November 1st. The school district plans to bring on thousands of substitute teachers and even place school administrators in classrooms. For the California Report, I'm Carrie Klein in Fresno. The Department of Motor Vehicles has suspended permits that allowed robo-taxi company crews to operate in San Francisco. That comes after an incident earlier this month in which one of the company's fully driverless vehicles hit and dragged a pedestrian. From San Francisco, KQED's Dan Brecky reports. On October 2nd, a cruise autonomous taxi in downtown San Francisco ran over a pedestrian who had already been struck by a hit-and-run driver. The cruise vehicle stopped after its initial collision, but then tried to pull to the curb, dragging the victim for about 20 feet. The DMV says the robot car's performance raises serious questions about the safety of Cruz's so-called autonomous driver, questions that need to be addressed before the company can operate again. The DMV also faulted Cruz for failing to immediately share full details of the collision, including video that showed the victims dragging. In a statement, Cruz said it had cooperated with the DMV investigation and continues to do so. It added that its thoughts are with a crash victim who suffered serious injuries. For the California Report, I'm Dan Brecky. The autonomous car company Waymo is still allowed to operate its cars on the streets of San Francisco. Meanwhile, here in Southern California, the Teamsters Union is pushing back against the rollout of autonomous taxis in Los Angeles County. Teamster members gathered outside of Google's offices in Venice yesterday, calling out what they say is dangerous technology. Google's parent company, Alphabet, owns Waymo. L.A. City Council member Hugo Soto Martinez is calling for new regulations on autonomous vehicles in the region. Waymo rolled out its first robo-taxis earlier this month in L.A. County. When Los Angeles-area landlords want to evict their tenants, they often hire attorney Dennis Block. Block's law firm has boasted about evicting more tenants than anyone else on Earth. But in a new investigation, LAist reporter David Wagner found a judge ruled that Block's firm recently submitted fake cases in court, and artificial intelligence might be playing a role. 
At first glance, the filing looks credible. It's properly formatted, it has block signature, cases are cited to argue for evicting the tenant. But on closer inspection, L.A. County Superior Court Judge Ian Fusselman noticed two cases were completely fake, and others had nothing to do with eviction law. In a May court hearing to sanction Block's firm, one of Block's lawyers, John Greenwood, told the judge, uh, I have to say there was a terrible failure in our office. The judge wasn't satisfied. He pressed Greenwood for answers on where these fictitious cases came from. This was an entire body of law that was fabricated, so it, it's difficult to understand how that happened. The attorney from Block's firm said the filing was prepared by a first-year lawyer. She said she did online research that had this information in it, and then she didn't check it. That lawyer no longer works for Block's firm, and she declined our interview requests. Block never showed up in court to explain the errors. The judge sanctioned Block's firm, and the hearing came to a close. Apologize, Your Honor. It'll never happen again. All right. Thank I appreciate you. that. The court did not get to the bottom of how exactly this filing was created. Six different legal experts told Elias they could think of a likely explanation, misuse of a generative AI program. I think it's virtually certain that the lawyer involved used some kind of artificial intelligence program to draft the brief that was filed. That's UCLA law professor Russell Korobkin. Fake information is a known problem with generative AI programs like ChatGPT. USC law professor Jonathan Choi says they produce documents that seem convincing, but sometimes have no basis in reality. This filing has the usual hallmarks of what's known as a hallucination. Earlier this year, a New York lawyer admitted to using ChatGPT in a similar brief containing made-up cases. UC Irvine law professor Ari Waldman says these tools, if left unchecked, could lead to unjust evictions and increased homelessness. Someone is going to be thrown out on the street because a lawyer couldn't bother doing research on their own. If that's where our legal system is heading, we're all in trouble. Block did not agree to an interview for this story. In an email, he wrote he cannot discuss matters that are confidential. Daniel Eukelson with the Apartment Association of Greater L.A. says Block has a solid reputation in local landlord circles. He is a very aggressive attorney, and he is a real strong advocate for people that own rental housing. Tenant lawyers say they frequently see aggressive, even underhanded tactics by attorneys representing landlords. Javier Beltran is with the L.A.-based Housing Rights Center. He says most tenants can't afford an attorney, and that creates an imbalance that favors landlords. The system does favor the idea of just kind of moving these cases along as quickly as possible. We don't know if Block's firm will face further discipline over the fabricated cases in its court filing. That's because state bar investigations are confidential. The judge ordered Block's firm to pay $999 to the opposing counsel. That's $1 below the threshold requiring attorneys to report violations to the state bar for further investigation. For the California Report, I'm David Wagner in Los Angeles. And Marketplace reporter Matt Levin contributed to that story. Support for the California Report comes from the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at Irvine.org. Hint, fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners with more than 25 flavors, including watermelon and pineapple, in stores or delivered from HintWater.com. And 
Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, advancing the frontiers of ocean science, exploration, and discovery on the web at SchmidtOcean.org. And that is this edition of the California Report for Wednesday, October 25th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm your host, Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Thanks so much for listening, and have a great day. In regional news, the union reports that Assemblywoman Megan Daly recently participated in a tour of local cannabis industries in Nevada County. The tour was coordinated by Diana Gamzon, the executive director of the Nevada County Cannabis Alliance. During the tour, the two were joined by Thomas Maioli, the Senior Cannabis Compliance Officer for Nevada County, and John Foley, the Board Chair of the Nevada County Cannabis Alliance, who's also a licensed cultivator. It began with a visit to a state-licensed testing laboratory called Higher Commitment. It was the first validated cannabis testing lab in the state, and it sets the standard for all licensed cannabis testing labs, according to Gamzon. They went on to tour Emerald Bay Extracts in Grass Valley, then High Hill Farms, which is a legal cannabis farm where Daly was informed about the local requirements for obtaining a cannabis cultivation permit in Nevada County. It ended with a helicopter ride courtesy of the Nevada County Sheriff's Office. Turning now to a look at the regional weather forecast from the National Weather Service. In Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight a 50% chance of showers mainly before 11 p.m., Cloudy during the early evening, then gradually clearing with a low around 39. Thursday, sunny with a high near 58. And Thursday night, partly cloudy with a low around 37. For Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight, rain, possibly mixing with snow after 11 p.m., then gradually ending. Snow level 7,200 feet, lowering to 6,100 feet after midnight. Thursday, sunny with a high near 48. And Thursday night, partly cloudy with a low around 22 degrees. And for Sacramento and the surrounding valley, tonight, a 20% chance of showers before 8 p.m., mostly cloudy, then gradually becoming mostly clear, with a low around 47. Thursday, sunny with a high near 66. And Thursday night, partly cloudy with a low around 43. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. Each year, United Way of Nevada County holds their Project Warmth program, distributing new or gently used winter clothing items like coats, hats, gloves, and scarves throughout the community for Nevada County residents in need. Up next, KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza speaks with Luis Reed, United Way of Nevada County's Executive Director, to learn more. Beginning on November 1st, United Way of Nevada County will begin collecting new and gently used warm clothing warm hats, coats, gloves, and socks, and then they're going to redistribute them to community members in need. It's called Project Warmth. Not knowing all that much about the United Way, I reached out to Louise Reed. She's the executive director of United Way of Nevada County. I asked a ton of questions, and Louise was very gracious with her time. My first question, what is the United Way? Here's Louise. Well, United Way is a worldwide charity um, that focuses on a local level. I won't go into all the details of how it's structured, but we are the local United Way. So it is um, our responsibility to look at Nevada County and see what the basic needs that are not being met 
by other social services and how we can step in and, and fill those needs. So right now for the United Way of Nevada County is focusing on food, clothing, and different aspects of um, access to health care. The local United Way is over 40 years old. We were started in 1993. I also wanted to know the history of the organization itself. It started in Denver, Colorado with, and this sounds like a joke, but with a priest, a rabbi, and somebody else. Way back in 1887, a Denver priest, two ministers, and a rabbi saw the need for cooperative action to help their city's poorest. It was basically the different um, religious organizations that decided to get together and do something good for the community. It has always worked on this idea of basic needs. So it's, it is what what's missing, right? You can always look at a community and say, what can we do better? Um, and it's certainly not hard these days. and certainly not hard in California, as expensive as it is to live out here. So does there need to be more housing? Does there need to be more food? Does there need to be more clothing? Does there need to be more free clinics? I mean, there's all sorts of things that we can work on um, from a United Way perspective. It's kind of one of the pluses and minuses of United Way. It's, it is such an old organization. Such, it's one of the very first charities in the United States. So they didn't want to work on a particular topic. They wanted to work on whatever that particular community needed. So um, while we might work on food, clothing, and access to health care, another United Way might be knee-deep into housing um, and that type of thing. As Louise mentioned, one of the things that United Way of Nevada County is focused on is clothing people in need, and starting November 1st, they'll begin Project Warmth. Every year, we um, work with different members of the community, primarily retail stores, but also banks. And this year we're at a lot of county locations where we put out boxes and let the community know that they can bring new or gently used winter clothing. So coats, hats, gloves, scarves, um, anything that's nice and warm we'll take. Uh, we bring it all back to our offices, and then we have shopping sprees that um, either nonprofit organizations that deal directly with clients who may be in need of that clothing, um, or even just individuals that don't have a winter coat um, are welcome to stop by. They can look through all of um, the coats that the lovely people of Nevada County have um, donated and take whatever they need um, to keep themselves warm for the winter. It starts on November 1st, and the boxes will be out from November 1st through December 15th. They've been doing it for 10 years now, and Louise says that Nevada County has been very supportive. Residents of this county have just been so wonderful. Last year, we collected and redistributed over 1,500 articles of clothing. If you want to donate new or gently used warm clothing, you can find the United Way of Nevada County online. 
We do have a page on our website, so you can go to uwnc.org, and under Programs, you'll see Project Warmth. So that will give you more information about where our boxes are specifically. We have about 20 different places that the boxes will be at. So you can look there to see where they will be and to learn a little bit more about the program. Before I left, I put Louise on the spot. I asked her for an elevator pitch for the program. (laughs) Yeah, really putting me on the spot. Well, um, you know, I'm new here. I, I... came from the Bay Area a few years ago and moved up to this absolutely magnificent, wonderful place that we call home. And um, it just, it it amazes me um, how many people really need help around here. And the, the need is just so great. And I'm so happy to be a part of that. And I'm really hoping that other residents will join us. There are a lot of people who are struggling just to get by day to day and they make decisions on whether or not they pay their bills or feed their family or buy new winter coats. And and certainly the winter coats come last. So we're really hoping that um, the community will join us and help protect everyone who lives here who needs a little bit of, of warm clothing to make it through this winter. I'm Claudio Mendonça. For KVMR. The presence of fire in the forest isn't new. Before the 1800s, millions of acres burned in California every year. That was before European settlers chose to outlaw fires set by Native Americans. Unfortunately, this lack of fire has created new problems, one of which being an excess of fuels and debris in our forests. Coming up, KVMR's Al Stoller speaks with Rita Clipperton, a prescribed fire and fuel specialist with the Tahoe National Forest Service, about a number of fuel reduction tactics. A hundred plus years ago, a decision was made on the federal level to suppress fire, put those fires out. People back then warned that, hey, you're going to have a lot of fuel building up if you don't allow it to burn off. Now, a hundred years later, we've got a lot of fuel built up. Rita, what can we do with all this fuel? Well, we certainly do need to start reducing the fuel and reintroducing fire into the landscape. It is a challenge. It's not as easy as picking up where we were 100 years ago and just putting fire everywhere. So we do have multiple different treatments that we can do. We can have um, fuel reduction with mechanical means. Mechanical means, also known as mastication. Mastication being a fancy word for chewing. How do you do that? So we can do chipping or mastication. Uh, There's equipment that will have a masticator head on it and targets the shrubs and the smaller conifers. Chews them up. Chews it up and chops it into smaller pieces that are then spread across the surface. And then there's chipping, which you do with larger pieces of wood. Yeah, chipping is very similar to mastication. Uh, The effects are very similar, just a bit different equipment. What does it mean for a fire to be prescribed? How do you write a prescription? We have a couple different ways. We have prescribed fire at low complexity with uh, hand piles that we build that that we can go back and burn in the winter months. We also have underburning so that we would have a prescription window in our burn plan uh, to burn it in conditions where fire intensity is low to moderate. The intensity being determined by how much moisture there is in the fuel. Yeah, that's part of it. Uh, One of the 
the parameters we're looking at in writing our prescription is how much moisture is in the fuel in combination with the the weather that we're having, the temperature, the humidity in the air. Usually we use underburn to clean up some of the fuel loading, the dead and down fuel on the forest surface, kill some of the shrubs and the ladder fuels, and to restore some health and get fire back in the ecosystem. If you're burning in very wet conditions, to minimize the fire behavior in those dead fuels, sometimes you're not going to have quite enough heat to um, kill the the live fuels. We don't have to meet all of objectives at once in one burn. You can have more than one treatment or go for one objective or the other. But those are some of the parameters we're looking at. Historically, in this area, fires came through more frequently than they do now. You know, roughly an average of around 30 or a little more than 30 years across the landscape with, you know, 8 to 60 years, you'd have fire somewhere on the landscape. The fire return interval. We want to avoid fire in the canopy. That's disastrous. How do you get rid of those ladder fuels? Those ladder fuels are usually trees with small diameter and shrubs. So we, we cut those and stack them. And then some of our mechanical treatments that we talked about, the mastication and chipping or other alternatives. There's other alternatives that we haven't used as frequently, but we're exploring is biomass removal, cut fuels and remove them, take away from the forest. When you're prescribing fire, it's okay to kill some trees. You realize it's going to happen. Our objective is not... 0% mortality in the trees. The trees are thick in the forest right now, and heterogeneity across the landscape is beneficial for wildlife. If we have areas where we have some trees torching, that's, that's acceptable for us. Open space can be nice too. Open space is nice. We have some small openings where some sunny spots um, on the edge of tall trees can be beneficial to the wildlife. How do you model fire behavior? We have some modeling tools to anticipate what kind of fire behavior that we'll have. Some simple fire behavior calculations. We can put in inputs such as the fuel moistures, the temperature in the air, the slope of the where the fuel is burning. You calculate that, and that gives you some general idea of what flame lengths and rate of spread you would have. Rita, I want to thank you very much for coming in and talking with us. It's a pleasure, Al. Thanks for having me. I've been speaking with Rita Clipperton. She is a prescribed fire and fuel specialist on the Tahoe. For KVMR, I'm Al Staller. That's our newscast for this Wednesday, October 25th. Head over to our website, kvmr.org, or subscribe to the KVMR News Podcast to hear more. KVMR gets support from listeners like you and Sierra Timberline, celebrating 45 years in business with two showrooms offering wood, gas, and pellet stoves, fireplaces, interior furnishings, along with hot tubs, patio furniture, and awnings. Open seven days. Idaho, Maryland Road, Grass Valley, sierratimberline.com. And the Nevada City Farmer's Market, Saturdays 8.30 to 1 p.m., Robinson Plaza and Union Street now through mid-December. Featuring sustainably grown food from local farmers, crafts, artisanal offerings, also live music and EBT accepted. ncfarmersmarket.org. 
Support for KVMR's Future of Radio project comes from AJA Video Systems, empowering the next generation of local journalists and broadcasters. The KVMR Evening Newscast is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendonca. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Julia Gem. Have a great night.